very kind. Thank you. How fun is this? You may be seated. How fun. How fun to be in a room where we're packed out and, and we're really getting close to each other. And, and I want to talk to you about money. My life changed. My life changed when I found out that the voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of wisdom are the same voice. In Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches all over America, they have divorced the Holy Spirit from wisdom. And people do all kinds of crazy things in the name of the Lord and say, God told me to do this, and it's stupid. It doesn't work. That's not how God is. God is brilliant. God has wisdom, great wisdom. And his wisdom is what we need to be able to prosper in the way that we need to prosper. We talked about this yesterday, and if you were not here at Anchor Bend Church yesterday, download that initial message. It's the introduction to all of this. It's how we start. But one of the verses that we talk about is out of Malachi. We pastors are familiar with it because we use it all the time to teach people to give. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows. Everybody say windows. Windows, windows that's plural. That's a plural word. And pour you out a blessing, there will not be room enough to receive it. What I want you to see is this. Windows implies that God has more than one channel to bless you. Now, if you are here yesterday, you heard that money flows in channels. It's a whole lot like electricity. Electricity doesn't do you any good if it strikes you outside of a channel. The only way that electricity does you good is if it's flowing to your home through some wires. If it hits you in an electrical storm, if a bolt of lightning gets you, you're in trouble. But electricity was meant to be a blessing from God to us. It's a wonderful thing that he created, and it is a resource for us, but it can't help you till it's in a channel. Water helps you when it's in a channel. Gas helps you if it's in a channel. Everything of value that helps you is based upon a channel, and that channel is a symbol of relationship. God uses relationships to bless you. There's a connection between one thing or another. Now, here's what happens. God uses this channel called job to bless you. And that job is, a, is not your source. God is your source. The job is only a channel. And here's what's dangerous about that. You get so fixed on that job that if something ever happens to the job or if technology changes and your career is no longer a career, they don't even do this stuff anymore, and you spend all this time training to get this job and all of a sudden it's gone, God is still God. He's still your source, but you've got to learn to not look at just one source. I thank God back in the early days that my principal jobs paid me badly. It was a blessing from God that I got ripped off the first 10 years I was in ministry. Great blessing from God. And it may not look like it, but today I look back on it and I say, thank you, Lord, that neither one of the guys I worked for really did a lot to help me get ahead. Thank you, God. I remember being in a business meeting at our church and one of the deacons stood up and said, it is a shame well, this church pays Brother Willie. We're ripping him off. We need to pay him. And I'm thinking, oh, God, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You're speaking on my behalf. 
And the pastor gets right up after this guy and says, I know, and he does need a raise. But i got to tell you right now, there are some things we've got to do that are more important. He changed the subject. I never got the raise, and it was tight all the time. I worked for that man all the time. Money was like pulling teeth. And, and, and that opened my eyes. I thought, this guy's not going to take care of me. Can I tell you something? We all want somebody to take care of us. All of us want somebody to take care of us. We want, and, 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 you know, I understand there's a time and a place for unions, but you can't look to the union to take care of you. If you get your eyes on the union, you're going to get burned. You get your eyes on any man, you're going to get burned. You get your eyes on just the company, you're going to get burned. God wants you to look to him. He is your source. He is your source. He may use that union. He may use the company. He may use your boss, your job for that season. But I learned a long time ago, if I was going to get everything that I felt like God wanted me to have, I had to learn to look to him because it certainly wasn't coming through my channel. My channel wasn't enough to pay my bills. We had to have extra every month just to get by, and we were not living extravagantly. I lived in a government housing project. My church taught prosperity, but my welfare neighbors made more money than I did. And so, and we lived in the worst part of town, in the worst apartment complex in the town, working for church. And we go to Sunday uh, church, and every Sunday morning we hear sermons and offering talks about how God wants to bless you financially. We weren't receiving that. It wasn't coming our way. So God had to give me some ideas along the way to help me. And I began to learn how he would give me supplemental channels. Now, the one man we look at who is our father is Abraham. He is the father of faith. Genesis 13.2 says this, Abram was very rich in cattle, silver, and gold. Abraham's wealth was multifaceted. He had three streams that brought him money. If the gold market went down, he's always got silver. If silver went down, he's always got the cattle. If the cattle go down, he's still got the silver and the gold. God had more than one way to bless Abraham financially. Now, I want to show you. We're reading between the lines here, but I want to show you how God got money to Abraham. I want you to see this. This is going to speak to us here. The Lord appeared to Abram or Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. This is Genesis 18, 1 through 8. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed low to the ground. And he said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree." Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seas of fine flour, knead it, bake some bread. 
Then he ran to the herd. He selected a choice tender calf, and he gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared, and he set them before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Now, this is what I want you to see. When you see someone who is acting like this, and I call this reflexive action. In other words, this is all happening so fast, this is not the mark of a man who is doing this for the first time. This is a man who does this all the time. He had a system. He immediately knew what to do. He goes to his wife. She starts making the bread. He goes to his servant. The guy field dresses the calf, guts it, makes sure he gets the best cuts of meat out of that calf. They barbecue the calf. They bring the cheese curds. Abraham gets these guys to water. And what I want you to see, he is springing into action reflexively. Now, today I had lunch with uh, Brandon Barber. And y- y'all know Brandon was a football player, and his dad was a football player. And one of the things that you learn about in football is how to be instinctive. In other words, when you're trying to figure out what's going on on the field, it's too late. And the higher you go in, in playing, and I don't know this because of experience, I just have known it from guys I know in the NFL that tell me this. There's no time to think. You better know what's going on, and you react instinctively. You better learn to develop instincts. Immediately you see things, and you go into a reaction before you ever had a chance to decide what you're going to do. And especially if you're playing something like linebackers, you you have to be able to react quickly or you're going to get beat. I, I had a man in my church who was a would, would have been in the Hall of Fame had he not broken his neck uh, playing football. But uh, he told me, he said, everybody thinks the NFL, they're all bigger. He said, they're not any bigger than they are in college. He said, the big difference in the NFL and college is, he said, the NFL is fast. He said, it's lightning fast. You don't have time to think. When I look at this, I see a guy who is lightning fast with hospitality. You know what it tells me? The guy's been doing this all the time. Why would he do it? Because he lives on the main caravan route between all of the Middle East and Europe, and anybody who's going to Egypt has to pass through where he lives. And they are in a very dry area, and they do not have water. What is Abraham known for? Now, it's not written here, but let me read to you a verse. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water Abimelech's servants had stolen or seized. Abraham was a well-digging machine. And everywhere he went, he dug wells. And when these caravans passed by, they had to have water. What does Abraham do? He immediately goes into servant mode. What he did there with God and those two angels, the three men who came to see him, he did that with everybody. He would bow before them. He let them know that he is their servant. He's there to serve them. He's not asking for money. This is not a pay first, get food later. He gives them water. He is giving them the servant treatment. And he is not wasting time. He knows when people are hungry that quickness is what makes it work. 
And so he is the original fast food guy. This is Abraham. How in the world does a guy get silver and gold if he lives in a desert? How in the world does a guy get silver and gold if he lives in a desert? And how in the world does he sell something for silver and gold if he doesn't have any cattle? So he's a guy who digs wells, has cattle, lives on a caravan route, and when people come by, they got to have what he's got. So what I want you to see, he had more than one channel. He had many channels. Now, he might have had one channel that was primary, but he had other channels that were supplementary. And so that's what I want to say to you. I want you to focus on serving and take care of your number one gig, which is your main job. But along the way, you might open your eyes up to the possibility that there could be other things that God would give to you. All right? And there's nothing wrong with meeting someone's need. God is not against exchange. He's against crooked exchange. Listen to this. The Bible says in Proverbs 11.1, 1, The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. As much as God hates people who cheat other people in their business dealings, now pay attention to this verse, the Bible says that God loves it when we have honest business dealings. The way a lot of people would lead you to think about God is he cares nothing at all about your money. God loves a good deal. He loves a fair trade. God loves this. In fact, if you go to the Middle East today, it's a lot like going to a market and reminded me of markets I was in in Mexico. When I would go to Mexico, what's the price? The price isn't set. We, and the guy on the other side, as much a part of the sales, anything, is you going back and forth arguing about this thing. And the same way in Israel, that, that the same way in the, in the old city of Jerusalem. You go there and buy anything, there is no set price. It's all up to you haggling with whoever's selling. And that's a part of the game. They love it. It's not just about the trade. It's about how we're going to do this. So what I want you to see here, God delights in a fair trade. So he's in you exchanging something you have to other people. The channels that God gives you are going to be in keeping with your experience and in keeping with your personality. So somebody says, I don't know what I could do. Whatever it is that God has for you, trust me, it will fit who you are. And it will fit your experience. It will work with who you are. Listen to me. We can't all be preachers. I believe that God raises up mechanics. I love to drive, and sometimes my car goes on the fritz. And if it isn't for guys who have all that grease and grime under their fingernails and in the little cracks of their skin, if it wasn't for those guys, I can't get anywhere. I don't like to plow, but I'm going to tell you what, I thank God for those people who do because I like to eat too much. And so thank God for those people that have that gift to farm. They, they love that. They eat that. They breathe that. They figure out ways to make money with farming. I love that kind of thing. God gives people with all these abilities. And God's going to use what abilities you have. And the chances are you've developed some of them. 
Chances are you haven't developed nearly all of them. I'll tell you more about how we do that in just a little bit. The Bible tells us about Saul and David, that Saul dressed David in his own tunic, and he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. This is for David went out fight Goliath. And David fastened on his sword over his tunic, and he tried walking around because he was not used to them. And he said, I can't go in these. I can't go because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. So when David went out to fight with Goliath, what did he do? He did what he was used to. That's why it's important that you develop skills in what you're used to. And you develop skills in what you have been involved with. You'll be familiar with the things that God gives you to do. I started working with kids when I was 20 years old. I became a kid's pastor. I didn't know anything about it, but I was driven because my uncle got up, the pastor, and said, I've got two little boys back in the children's church fighting, and the teacher can't control them. I need one of you men to go back there and sit with those little boys. And my uncle was looking at me the whole time. I got up out of my seat and I looked back at my uncle and the whole time I'm staring him down. <laughs> one day, I go one day, I ain't doing this all the time. Y'all not going to stick me with those kids. One time I'll go back there. So I go back there in that children's church and there's two little boys, about eight or nine years old, little Hispanic boys. They're, they're both, one of them's got the other one in a headlock. <laughs> and I sit down between those two kids, separate them make them behave, and about 30 minutes later, I've got both of them in a headlock. It's bad. It is the most. <laughs> that teacher is so bad, and, and, and I start thinking to myself, I wouldn't come back to this church. If I was these two little boys, I wouldn't come back. I'd never come back here again. This is boring. The teacher's not connecting with them. There's nothing she's saying or doing that connects to these two little boys. And so those two little Hispanic boys that I set between in April of 1973, those little boys called me to be Gospel Bill. Those little boys called me to develop a worldwide children's ministry. Those two little boys called me to do a kids' TV show. Those little boys called me to produce children's curriculum for churches all over America and around the world. I went to Asia, I went to Africa, I went to Europe. All because of two little Hispanic boys that I sat between who were eight and nine years old who hated the class. And I said, God, I've got to reach these guys. Somebody's got to do this. Somebody says, how do you know what your channel is? When something pops up in front of you and you say, somebody's got to do something. Somebody ought to do something. Somebody ought to do something. Somebody ought to do something. Sometimes we start a church. Sometimes we start a better lawn mowing service than the one that's been doing our yard. Sometimes we start a garage that somebody should have started a long time ago. Somebody uh, starts working on Corvettes because they're Corvette junkies. 
They didn't know it, but there's loads of Corvette junkies out there. I got a man in my church who's a Corvette junkie. I, I, no, no, he's a Shelby Mustang uh, Cobra uh, junkie. That's what he is. He started with that. And, and he works on cars for people all over America because it was his passion, and he learned how to do it. He, and, and he said, I had extra time, and I had all these tools. So he said, I'm in Oklahoma. So I developed another channel. I said, what's your other channel? Storm shelters. He said, I figured out they're not that hard to build. So he said, if we didn't have car work to do, I'd just take my whole crew. We'd start building storm shelters. He said, so I was always had storm shelters to sell too. So I'm doing Shelby Cobras and storm shelters. Made a business out of the whole thing. Doing great. Got different streams of income coming in. And all of it fits who he is. He's not going to be an accountant. He's not going to be a singer. He loves working with his hands. He loves to weld. He knows how to do it right. So what I want you to see is that God gave him an income stream that was in keeping with what he did. Now, I want you to listen to what happened to me. I learned how to teach these kids. I started out with just a few little kids. I went to the pastor and I said, would you guys pray about letting me have all the kids, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade? They didn't pray. They just waited a bit and came back and said, yes, you can have them all. <laughs> So I got all those kids that nobody wanted. And so every week, everybody thinks I'm teaching the kids. Uh-uh, they're teaching me. I learned what an attention span was. I learned that you couldn't preach for 30 minutes and expect kids to listen. I had to whittle it down to five or six minutes. But I got a whole hour, hour and 20 minutes. What am I going to do with the other hour and four or five minutes after my six-minute sermon? So I got to come up with some other stuff. I found out that kids would listen to me if I could talk to something that did not speak English. So I had this dog who would come in. I bought, got a costume, rented it, and the dog would come in. I said, to, told the guy in the costume, all you got to do is when I shut up, you bark. So he would come in, he'd go, bah, 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 and I would make up a story. And he would, bah, 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 and just having that stupid dog bark between when I was talking to kids, just a little, it was amazing that I could speak German Shepherd. I started learning that when you teach kids, you can't get on to the kids. You have a puppet do exactly what the kids are doing, and you chew that puppet's butt out. I mean, you have the kids. Can you believe he did that? Can you believe he said that to his mom? Everybody say, stupid, stupid, stupid. Now, stupid, stupid, stupid. And they're all doing the same thing every week. <laughs> but all of a sudden, church is fun. It's exciting. I'm preaching on Jesus is the Lamb of God. You heard me a little bit yesterday talk about how I took a, a baggie and I filled it with Cairo syrup and red food coloring and covered it up with newspaper and spray painted it and made it look like a little lamb. I talked about Jesus was our lamb. Then I took a big old knife and just stuck that thing, man. And the blood went out everywhere and the kids are all looking at me. And boy, you talk about attention, man. I had attention in my children's church. I was always burning stuff up and cutting things apart and all that stuff. I did a heart transplant on a guy. He came in and said, man, I'm not right with God. I said, it's because you need a new heart. He said, I don't like going to church. I said, it's your old heart. He said, I don't get along with my wife. I said, it's your old heart. He said, I cuss all the time and I got a terrible habit with uh, cigarettes. I need to be delivered. I said, it's your old heart. We got to get you a new heart. Lay down here. And I laid him down, put a sheet over him. We started knocking him out. I hit him with a hammer. 
Not really, but it looked like I hit him hard in the head with a hammer. And then we started sawing, and I had a microphone under that sheet. I started sawing with the biggest old saw I could find. It sounded awful. I said, bring me a sponge, nurse, and she comes over with a big old sponge, and I hold up the clean side, but when I turn it over, it's got red uh, uh, fingernail polish on the back side, and so you can see all the blood, and the kid, oh, look at that, and I said, we got to get this out here. Kid, look at that. Look at that, and I put the stethoscope on, and I pulled out a rock. I said, listen, God said, I'll take away the stony heart out of you, and I'll give you a new heart. We're going to listen to this. This heart, ooh, this heart just said a cuss word. This heart said, I don't want to go to church. No wonder the guy can't live for God. He doesn't have the right heart. Bring me the right heart, nurse. Jesus came to give us a brand new heart. We've been to the butcher shop. We got us a pig's heart. So she brings it up there. And I start listening to that pig's heart. I want to go to church. I want to read my book. We got to put this heart in this guy. He'll be different if we get him a new heart. So we put the pig's heart under the sheet and pretend to sew him all up. He wakes up. He's a totally different man. And then he starts sweating bullets because he knows this operation cost a lot. I said, you bet it did. 100000 way more than 100000 How am I going to pay for it? I said, you're never going to pay for this operation. You don't have to. Jesus paid for you to get this operation. All right. I thought, you know what, that worked. I can do something about that with the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost to take the chicken out of you. You ever seen one of those old rubber chickens they sell? I had a guy who's a Christian, but he said, I'm afraid to share my story. I'm afraid to talk to people about Jesus. I said, the Holy Ghost will take the chicken out of you. So we operate on him and pull the rubber chicken out. So I just started learning. You going to do that on Wednesday night, Pastor? All right. <laughs> So what I want you to see is I wrote a Sunday school curriculum with the wildest lessons that you have ever heard. And America stepped up. And you know what it did? It made men want to teach kids because they love to cut stuff up and they love to burn stuff and they love to, to, to do all that kind of stuff. And we get all these men involved with little boys and thank God for that. So I did a Sunday school curriculum for kids, but that led to this. People didn't know how to teach kids, so I had to sit down and explain what I had learned about teaching kids. After several years of doing it, I, I could hold the attention of hundreds. Listen, at Hagen's camp meeting in 1978, I had 1,500 kids for three hours. Ages 3 to 12, you could hear a pin drop. I know something about holding the attention of kids. And so I had to do instruction tapes about how to teach kids. I had audio cassettes for children to listen to for bedtime stories. I made puppets. I made VHS video cassettes for kids. I did gospel bill family rallies. Then I went out and started doing seminars to train teachers who had heard about me and they invited me to come to their churches. That led to a summer camp. I had t-shirts with all of my characters' pictures on them. We did kids' music and worship cassettes. These are all channels that God gave me. Every one of them was a channel. Now, some of them were just like salt and pepper. They, 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 they brought in a little bit of money. They weren't the main moneymaker. But if I hadn't done that, there would never have been a gospel bill show on TV. Can I tell you this? And I'm not mad. I'm just telling you it's the truth. 
I thought churches were going to get behind me. When I would go, the pastors would say, we're going to help you. I had one church that gave me $100 a month. One. One church in St. Louis, Missouri that gave me a regular offering on a regular basis to do what I did for kids. It wasn't near enough, and loads of people who said they would help maybe gave me a one-time gift, and I thank God for all of that. Had I not learned how to make money, there would never have been anything for kids like Gospel Bill. It would never have happened. God had to take me through the business world. All right. Now, don't get so caught up with finding new channels that you neglect the channel that you have right now. I needed more money, and I would go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm not being paid fairly. And the Lord would tell me, I know it, but I don't want you to leave this place. I said, then how do I take care? I have a little boy now, Lord. I, we have a very difficult time making ends meet. I, I don't have a phone. I do not have a telephone. I live in a government housing project. My rent is subsidized by the federal government because I make so little money. The first four years that I filed income taxes, I paid $0 in taxes. In fact, the Internal Revenue Service would write me back letters saying, we're sorry, it's so hard. Not really, but they should have. <laughs> my point is, my point is, I wasn't being treated fairly, but God was using that because I was going to face that on a big scale when I started my own ministry. And he wanted to wean me from looking to the men that I looked to, and he wanted to take my attention to him. And he said, you look to me. And I cannot tell you how he did it, but every month, as long as I was there in that job, extra money came, sometimes from here, sometimes from there. But God made up the difference. Now, finally, he led me to leave. But he always, always put it in me. Make use of what you've got right now. Listen to me. You can get so impatient with how things are right now that you don't realize that you're setting a pattern for the future with the job you've already got. I, I told the Lord one time, we're about to close with this illustration, but I told the Lord. I said, Lord, I'm going to quit. They're doing this to me at the church. They're doing that. I go out of town on vacation. I come back, and they've stolen three of my classrooms. They've taken them over for the ushers and the greeters and the hospitality people. Three of the classrooms that I needed to teach kids. They, they didn't even ask me. They just took them. I'm quitting this place. I had a laundry list of stuff that, that was happening at that church. And the Lord said, you can't leave. I said, Lord, maybe you didn't know this, but this is going on and that's going on and this is going on. <laughs> and he said, you can't leave. I'm not going to let you leave. If you leave, you'll be out of my will. I said, it's not going to do any good to argue with, is it? Nope. All right. I'm staying. And if I'm staying, i got to have your help. And with your help, I'm going to take this children's ministry in this church, and I'm going to make it the number one children's ministry in the world. 
and I'm going to blow people's minds with what you do here with kids. And I'm just going to, I'm just, I'm going to pour my heart into this place and make it better than ever before. Same prayer session. Hadn't got up off my knees. I'm still on my knees in kneeling in the same chair. And I hear the Lord say, okay, leave. I said, 15 minutes ago, you told me I had to stay. Now you're telling me I can leave? He said, yes, because you're leaving for the wrong reason. He said, if you leave because things are tough on your job, you wait till you have your own ministry, you want to fire yourself. He said, it'll be tough then too. It won't always be easy. So you start with where you are and you pour into that place. And when the time is right, God will open the new door. Meantime, keep your eye open for channels that fit what you're doing. Okay? My son-in-law came to me. I lied to you. I'm going to tell one more story. No, I can't, I can't tell you that story. I can't tell you that story. It's in another chapter here. But anyway, what I'm telling you is God has ideas, amazing ideas. lady in our church had breast cancer, terrible experience. And one of the things that she learned was every spa that I go to, they treat me like I've got leprosy because I've had a mastectomy. And she said, cancer survivors shouldn't have to go through this. So she opens up a spa whose specialty is dealing with women who've dealt with cancer. And today it is a booming business, but it's not just a booming business, it's a great ministry because she has trained her staff to be especially sensitive to women who've had to overcome and fight cancer. And it's a wonderful channel. How did it come? You know, somebody ought to do something like this. Have you ever had that thought? You know, somebody ought to do something. And maybe that somebody is the Lord talking to you that you ought to do something. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back in 15 minutes, and we'll get into round two.
If I can get your attention as we're moving back to our seats, I want to tell you a couple of stories. I'm going to throw out ideas. I, I'm, I'm slinging mud on the walls. And I'm hoping that one of these ideas strikes you somewhere. Guy in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, years ago, works in a steel mill. Well, you know what happened to that. They shut them all down. So he had no job, and the housing market went low. So he couldn't really move easily without losing all of his equity. So one day he sees this lady working on some junk in her yard, and he goes over and says, do you need help cleaning this up? And she said, oh, yes, I would pay you to help me. So he has a pickup, and he goes over and starts cleaning up all this lady's junk, hauls it off. Some of it he can sell. She didn't want it. Well, he does this, and the next thing you know, another lady like her calls him, said, I need you to clean out my attic if you can. He goes over, he gives her a quote. She said, you bet, I'll do it. And so he starts cleaning up attics and yards and all this stuff. Before long, he's got a business paying him way more money than what he was working at the steel mill. And so sometimes what looks like the negative really can be flipped into a positive. You've just got to not let go and keep looking to God. I had an associate pastor. He was a car guy. He grew up with cars. He knew about cars. He was very familiar with cars. He could look at a car and tell you what model it was. He started taking the Dallas paper, living in Tulsa. He would get the Sunday Dallas paper and just look through it for a used car. But he noticed a trend. He would compare the prices of the same car in Tulsa, and he noticed that the car in Dallas was selling for several thousand dollars less than what it was selling in Tulsa. So he goes to the bank, and he asks the banker, will you loan me money for this car, this much money, and I don't want to do monthly payments. I want to borrow the money for six months. I'll pay a single interest payment, no compounded interest, single interest payment, but every six months I will pay off that note. And the banker said, sure, I'll do that. You've got good credit. I'll let you do that. And you put the car up for collateral. So he gets on a Southwest Airlines plane, pays $49 to fly to Dallas, meets with the guy who's got the car for sale, looks it over, determines that the guy told the truth, drives the used car back to Tulsa, gets the title and stuff put in his name, pays the interest payment, drives it for six months, and sells it for more than what he paid for it because the market in Tulsa for that particular car was better than what the market was in Dallas. So my associate pastor drove a new car every six months and never had a car payment. Wow. <laughs> now that's not necessarily making money, but it's dang sure saving some money. And you get a new car every six months. And I couldn't do that because I know you get in the car behind the steering wheel. I know that. And I know you put, the, I don't know enough about cars to do what he did. Now I developed skills in another area. So what I want you to see is every one of us has a totally different skill set. One lady came to me and she said, you know what? I make baskets. 
And she said, my husband sells them at his work. And he said, the, she said, the ladies there love the baskets that I make. She makes baskets for every occasion. Some of them, are, it's got body lotion, shampoo, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, some of it, it's food. She had all these different ideas for baskets, and she could do all of it out of her home. She was amazing at putting them all together. It was just, a, it wasn't enough to make a living, but it brought an extra income stream into their home. There's always something, and I'll be telling some more of those here in a minute. Proverbs 10.4, lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. This is what I want to tell you. When you are not happy with your money situation, and I've been there, and when you are not happy with your job, and I have been there, one of the things that it is human nature to do is to defer your dreams to the future. One of these days, it's going to get better. One of these days, a better job is going to come along. One of these days, I'm going to get a better boss than the boss I've got right now. But I want to say something to you. If you do not take advantage of the now, you will never receive the new. You have to take advantage of the now because the now is the key to getting you to the new. Do not wait for perfect circumstances. Now listen, when it comes to money, the hand is more important than the heart. When it comes to money, the hand is more important than the heart. Now I'm going to show you that from this Bible story. It's found in Genesis chapter 39. It's the story of Joseph. It says that Joseph was brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him. Now here he is in a strange country, 17 years old. He does not know the language. He does not have his freedom. He is a slave. Do you think his heart is in this? No. He is heart sick. He is brokenhearted. He wants to go home. But he can't because his brothers sold him into slavery. And the Bible says the Lord was with Joseph and he was a prosperous man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now this is important. God said that Joseph was prosperous, but he's a slave. So apparently God's definition of prosperity is not having a whole bunch of money in a bank account. Prosperity is an attitude of the heart. And it all starts with this attitude that you've got. And the way that we know you've got the right attitude is you start doing something with your hand. There is nothing that Joseph can do. There is nothing that he can change. So I want you to listen to Genesis 39, 3. And Joseph's master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his what? Hand. It was Joseph's hand that made the difference. He probably didn't feel like doing this work, but he's got no choice. 
So he pours everything he's got into being, if I'm going to be a slave, I'm going to be the best slave. I'm going to be the best one. I'm not saying that we're teaching and condoning slavery. I'm just saying this guy says, I'm going to do this job better than anybody's ever done it before. All right? And, I'm, and he's obviously working for the Lord. And he made him overseer of his house. And over all that he had, he put it into his what? Hand. So Joseph winds up running the show. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, Genesis 39.6, Genesis 39.8. And he committed all that he had to my hand, is what Joseph said when the man's wife tried to make passes at him. And then Genesis 39.22, he gets thrown into prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's what? Hand. All the prisoners that were in the prison and whatever they did there, he was the doer of it. Genesis 39, 23, the keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under Joseph's hand because the Lord was with him, and that much he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Six times in one chapter, the Bible mentions that it was Joseph's hand that got him to where he was. I had learned how to do this early on. I got trapped into doing jobs I didn't like to do. We hauled hay. We hauled hay. That's how my uncle had to pay his salary. We were in a small church. It didn't pay him enough to live. And so he and I got a hay truck and we hauled hay. I got room and board and $10 a week. Room and board and $10 a week ain't a lot of money to make for hay hauling. But I was there to help my uncle and to serve him. And I poured my heart in that hay hauling job. And we weren't just hay haulers. We were the best hay haulers. We took pride in beating everybody's butt in the hay hauling business. <laughs> I'm telling you, we slung those bales. We stacked those. We stacked them eight tiers high on a 20-foot bobtail trailer, 262 bales. We could haul some hay. I'm telling you, if we could work just in the field and didn't have to haul it 40, 50 miles away, we could move over 2,000 bales a day. It was amazing how much hay we hauled. And everybody in the area knew that we were the best. When you come to Church on the Move today, people will say, this place is so clean. Everything about it is clean. If you've ever been to our church, that's one thing you know. The bathrooms are clean. Everything is sharp. We have people who do nothing but go around and paint because we have lots of kids. And kids put little handprints all over. We're constantly cleaning things up. Constantly. We keep... Our stuff looking fantastic. You know where I learned that? I learned it in a hay field. I learned it when I started. People ask me, where did you get this excellence? Everything we do, we do it with excellence. But my uncle taught me that in a hay field years ago. I hated the now, but I understood the idea that if I want to get out of the now and go to the new, I got to treat the now like it's important. Are you with me? That's what the Bible teaches us about diligence. Now, I'm talking to you about ideas, and we all want that great idea, and there are great money-making ideas out there. But sometimes the key to your money is not an idea. The key is your hand. You need to stick with it and apply yourself. Sometimes we, we, we goof around and we talk too much. And we love to visit. You know, I used to have trouble in my job when I worked at a church where big staff, 
I didn't have this problem when we had a small staff. It was just me and the pastor. We didn't have this problem. But when we had a big staff, I moved to Tulsa, and there were loads of us on staff. Everybody would come to my office and interrupt me. I couldn't get any work done. I couldn't get any work done at all. I mean, I'd be right in the middle of something. I heard somebody else come in and sit down. Hey, what's going on? One day I just said, Lord, i got to talk to you about this. How come everybody feels like they come to my office and talk to me in the middle of my work day? And the Lord said, how do you handle your work break? I'd get up and go to the Dr. Pepper machine. Hey, what's going on? I'm going to their office. I'm doing that to them on my way. On my, I'm on my break. It's okay. It's not okay. You know what I'm doing? I'm telling all those people, I got all the time in the world. Because they see me all through the day, just taking it easy. I'm on break. I don't do that when I'm working. But on my break, I'm hanging out and talking with everybody. So, so they're coming when they're on break and returning the favor to me. <laughs> I started noticing my pastor, when he would come into the church, he would walk down that hall, go right into his office and close that door, and he didn't come out. <laughs> and, I'm, and you know what? We all respected his time. We all respected that he was busy. We all treated him with high regard because he looked like he was busy. I don't know if he was or not. He might have been sleeping in there. But far as we knew, he was busy. You see... The way you carry yourself is how a lot of other people treat you. If you want to be looked at as someone who can be trusted, the, this guy says, every time I look at Joseph, he's cleaning something. He's doing something. He's, he's working on something. All right? You don't know this, but Joseph was promoted finally, and he got to be the second in command of all of Egypt. And listen to this. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand, and he put it on whose hand? On Joseph's hand. That's the seventh time his hand is mentioned. In the Bible, six is the number of a man who falls short of God's glory. But seven is what happens when God crowns him. And when we see the seventh mention of Joseph's hand, it's when the Pharaoh promotes him. So he's doing all that he can do. Then God steps in and does what he can do. That's so cool. Now, what I want you to see is that diligence is the surefire way to being a leader and being promoted. Two things go together in life, and you need to know what they are. They are privilege and responsibility. Everybody wants privilege. Privilege is more money. Privilege is a parking spot with your name on it. Privilege is a corner desk or corner office. Privilege is a title. It's a raise in pay. It's little perks. We all would like to have privilege. But can I tell you where privilege comes from? It comes from responsibility. And when you take responsibility, privilege is sure to follow. The reason more people don't have privilege is because they don't take responsibility. Joseph started taking responsibility on that job, and it brought him privileges. If he's going to be a slave, he might as well be the top dog. He might as well run the whole household. But you know what Joseph was doing? He was going to school. Did you know you don't have to be enrolled in, a, in an, a, a, an elite college 
to get great training. I have one year of school. I've built over $120 million worth of buildings. I've built our ministry up to a $30 million a year business. I have over 350 employees, and I got one year of Bible school. And I did not learn what I'm telling you in Bible school. I learned how to play basketball. <laughs> I didn't learn anything about business. I learned how to eat popcorn. I learned how to play pranks. I learned that you could fill up an envelope with shaving cream and take scissors and cut the edge and slide that envelope under somebody's door and slam it with your Strong's Exhaustive Concordance and it would spray shaving cream all over that room. So I'd knock on the door. I could hear them grabbing the handle. Boom! And there's a shaving cream bomb. Explodes head to toe, man. It covers them up. I learned that in Bible school. But you know what? I hadn't made a nickel with that. But I'm going to tell you something. I learned excellence and I learned work. What did Joseph learn when he went to school? First of all, number one, he learned the Egyptian language. He didn't speak their language. He couldn't communicate with them in the beginning. It must have been really rough as a 17-year-old kid not to know the language of the people where you got to work and they don't like you. So the first thing he had to do is learn the language. Denny Duran's pastor friend of mine in Shreveport, Louisiana, he told me one of the most heartbreaking stories I've ever heard. He said when he had this Christian school that for whatever reason, the girls in the school treated his oldest daughter horribly. And they wouldn't talk to her. They wouldn't deal with her. They wouldn't have anything to do with her. And they had all of these kids who had come to Shreveport from China. And many of them were in his school. And so the only girls who would sit with her at lunch were the Chinese girls. So she starts hanging out with the Chinese girls. She becomes interested in them and in their culture. And so she starts taking some trips to China. She decides after college, she's going to work in China. She learns the language. This rejection from the cool girls at school turned her into an international business agent in the fastest developing economy in the world by the hand of God. So Joseph's down here in Egypt, and he learns the language. Number two, he learns the culture. You can offend people and not even know you've offended them if you don't know their culture. And then finally, what did they put him over? The food. First place he worked, it was about the food. The second place he worked in the prison, it was about the food. All of these years, 13 years, Joseph is in food service. And finally, in the prison, he becomes an expert on human behavior because the prison is, is full of innocent guys. No, I did not get my food yet. Oh, yes, you did. I brought it by here a little bit ago. He learns to read people and read them well. And so guess what? When Pharaoh has a dream and he doesn't know what it means, there's a guy who says, I remember this guy in prison who can interpret dreams, and it's Joseph. 
And he comes in and he not only interprets the dream for the Pharaoh, but listen to me now. He doesn't just interpret the dream, but when he's over, he tells Pharaoh how to solve the problem that's going to happen when the dream comes to pass. Joseph gets the job not because of a lucky break. He gets the job because he's the only man in Egypt who can do this. And the Pharaoh says about Joseph, I want you to listen to this. He said, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, for as much as God has showed you all this, there is none so discreet and as wise as you are. He said, basically, there's not a man in my kingdom who can do what you're going to do with this food. And so Joseph was totally ready. He could tell if someone was lying. He could tell how much food people really needed. He could tell how to save food. He managed food. He spoke the language. His brothers didn't even recognize him because he had completely adapted to the Egyptian culture. When they came after he was promoted, they had no idea they were talking to their own brother. He spoke without an accent. I mean, this guy was good. And so what I want you to see, we read the story and we think, man, it's amazing how God gave him a lucky break. It wasn't lucky. It was the hand of God promoting somebody who should have been promoted a long time ago. What I want you to see is that God had Joseph in this place to train him. And sometimes your training is not coming from where you think it should. Sometimes it's that hard, dead-end job that is the very working for a very difficult boss is preparing you. Listen, when God had me learn how to teach kids, he didn't put me with the sweet little church kids. (laughs) He put me with bus kids. They were mean as heck. I had a little black boy in my church, and little is loose. He weighed about 250 pounds in the fifth grade. His name was Grover Lee Mack. Cutest kid you've ever seen. Big old cheeks and old Grover would walk in. I love that kid. He had one of those kid heads. Every time you see him, I wanted to give him a noogie. I just wanted to hug him and just rub the top of his head. And old Grover was the most lovable kid. But I started noticing that the kids next to him would cry from time to time in service. And I thought it was because God was touching those kids. It wasn't as Grover had them in a headlock, man. He was, he was strong as an ox, ornery as the Dickens. I had to learn to teach with Grover sitting out there putting his two kids in headlocks and banging their heads together. He was so much stronger than everybody else. That's who I had to learn to teach with. I had to learn to teach with kids who I had them red, yellow, black, and white. I had race rides on my bus every Sunday. I mean, it was amazing. And I learned how to deal with those kids and solve those problems. I had the first integrated church in our whole region. We had the first mixed-race church. And I loved bringing those kids in. I developed relationships. People would say, you can't go down that part of town at night. I can go anywhere in this town. You watch me. And I would go down and they'd say, oh, it's the candy man, because I give out candy every time I knock on doors. <laughs> I went everywhere I wanted to go. 
There wasn't anybody who treated me like an outsider. They loved me. They opened doors to me all over the place. Do you know why this was important? Because God was going to call me to teach kids all over America. And God didn't want me just teaching white kids. God wanted me to teach red and yellow and black and white. He wanted me to have all those little Hispanic kids on my bus. He wanted me to have experience in all their homes. I got along with all of them. But I learned it in some of the roughest conditions you could learn in. See, and you may think, oh, man, I'm in a dead-end job. You may not be as dead-end as you think you are. You may be in a great place to learn to hear from God. Make the best of exactly where you are in the now, and then God will get you to the new. Can I give you, can you give me an amen? Amen. All right. Now, don't shrink from hard conditions. Hire the perch. Tougher the training. So if you're going through something tough, God must have something really good for you. I want you to think about all the people in the Bible who went to the top. They were all the people that were overlooked. Listen to me. God loves to hide people. He hid the king in a sheepfold. He hid a baby who's going to rule all of Egypt. He hid him in a basket. He hid the savior of the world in a manger, and then in a carpenter shop. That's how God works. God loves to find people who've been in obscure, hard, tough places. T.D. Jakes. You ever listen to T.D. Jakes? There's not a preacher in America that holds a candle to T.D. Jakes. He is the best. I'm telling you, nobody preaches like that man. He set your soul on fire. Until just relatively few years ago, he pastored a church of less than 200 people out in West Virginia. Dinky Nowhereville Church, but he still preached like that. And nobody knew it. And then one day, God says, okay, it's time for the covers to come off. And it's like, where did this guy come from? This had been going on for a long time. That didn't just start. And this is what I want you to see. So many of us will say, when I hit the big time, then I'll start doing it right. No, you got to start doing it right and doing it well when you're on the little bitty stage that nobody sees. All right. Now, last thing I'm going to share with you in this one. Think about developing a six-day project. What are you talking about, Brother Willie? I, I, just watching people over the years, everybody I know who's made a lot of money, there are people who work six days a week. You will break even on a five-day-a-week job. But if you're going to get ahead, you're going to have to put in the equivalent of six days. Now, listen to me. I didn't say you had to work all day on Saturday. I didn't say that. But this is what I did. I started learning if I wanted to get ahead, I couldn't shut it down at 5. I had to go home at 5. My wife is fixing supper, and I've got to be with my kids. I've got to have family time. But when my wife went to bed earlier than me, and so I always took at least two hours every night developing my skills. I read. I studied. I had a kid's TV show. We were cowboys. I poured through Western history books 
and I learned all kinds of Western history. People will say, man, this guy, I, I know all kinds of stuff about Western history. I could probably have a degree in Western history with all the study I've got. You ought to see the hundreds of books I've got on Western history. But I got that every couple of hours at night that I had. I poured into that stuff. I learned. I remembered that stuff. I made myself better in that because that's what I needed as background material to write my shows. Very often I would write my shows at night, not at the office, because it was easier to write at home than it was at the office. When all the kids were in bed, my wife's in bed, I could write then a whole lot easier than I could when I was in a busy office space. I put in all those extra hours. My wife and I, we bought houses that needed fixing. Every house we bought needed work. We'd buy it, and we'd spend a couple of hours here and a couple of hours there. And the next thing you know, we got that whole room done. We got it painted. We got it wallpapered. We got a new carpet in it. We fixed it up. Then we moved to the next room. And it would take us about a year to go through that whole house. And at the end of the year, we sold that first house in Tulsa and made $10,000. We moved into another house. Guess what we started doing? We're painting those rooms. We're fixing those things up. We're learning how to decorate. We're putting up wallpaper. Every little bit here, a little bit there. We lived in that house for a year. We put it on the market and sold it. We made $12,000. What did we buy? A house exactly like we wanted? No. We want one. We, we went in and said, you know what? This place stinks, but we're going to make it something. So we moved in it and started working on it a little bit of time. It was decent. It wasn't bad, but we started fixing it up a little bit here, a little bit there. I'd come home from work, and my wife had done all kinds of stuff. She just, I mean, getting with it all day long, wallpaper and painting and all that decorating. We lived in that house for two and a half years and sold it and made $54,000. Today, we can live pretty much anywhere we want to live. I bought a piece of property. I fixed it up out in the country, 80 acres. I put fences on it. I dug a pond. I had the guys come dig a big bass pond. We planted pine trees. It had a second little house that was a dump. We turned that into a little castle. We made, are you ready for this? We made $1 million off that property when we sold it after living there for eight years. But we didn't start with the big piece. We started with the little piece. With the house that nobody wanted to live in. But we lived there and we fixed it up. See what I'm telling you? It's a six-day project. Six days shalt thou do thy labor. My son-in-law came to me and said, Willie, I want to talk to you. He said, I want to build a house. And I have learned over the years that even when I think people are making a mistake, just shut up for a minute and let them talk. He's never built anything. I don't know if he knows what a hammer is. <laughs> he worked in my warehouse, but I'd never known of him to build anything. But he said, Willie, I want to build a house. He lived in the little house that we remodeled and fixed up. I didn't want to see him and my daughter move and move my grandson away from us, but I got to listen. So he comes to me and says, I feel like I can do this. He said, there's a guy that I work with. In fact, he said, I'm over this guy in our warehouse. 
And he said, he's just a mild-mannered guy, an unassuming guy. But he and his wife build one spec house every year. And he keeps a 40-hour-a-week job, but every morning he gets up early and he meets with the subs before the day starts, writes notes, leaves instructions in the house. He comes there immediately after work, and they will build one house a year, and they will make about $30,000 profit. He said, I'm going to borrow the money. The bank has already told me they'll loan it to me because they have a guaranteed buyer, me. And I'm building the house. And so he went out and he built a house. And he did a good job. Because it wasn't him with the hammer. It was somebody else. <laughs> so he supervised the whole thing. He acted like he knew what was going on. He put things into that house that other builders weren't doing. It was amazing what he did. And after he got that built, he went to the bank and said, Would you do this again? They said, Yes, we will. And so he borrowed money and put up a spec house. And so he buys, the, builds this, buys a lot, builds a second house, and this couple comes in and says, we want this house. As the first day he had it on the market, they come in and want to buy it. They said, we love the way you build. And another couple comes in and says, no, you can't have it. We want this house. And so he got two couples fighting over the same house on the same day. He says, wait a minute, I've got a solution. I've got another house over here. So he took them down the street to his house, and one couple said, yes, this is the house we want. So he closes on two houses in one day. So what does he do? He, he, and, and fortunately, he's married to my oldest daughter. My oldest daughter didn't want dolls for Christmas. You know what she wanted? She wanted calculators. The old push-button adding machines, that's what she wanted. Calculators. She was always, she started the HR program at our ministry. She's loved to do business stuff. And so she didn't mind moving into a duplex. They moved into a duplex, and they bought another a lot in another neighborhood. The bank is ready to go with them. You bet. How many houses you want to build? He built five houses in that neighborhood, sold every one of them. You know what he's doing now? Today he's developing his own neighborhood. He'll build every house in it. He'll make millions of dollars. You know what the name of his company is? Sixth Day Properties. Because he said it all started with me doing just one extra day of work. And it turned into a huge, huge blessing. That's what I want you to see. You don't know where this thing may go. You don't know. I mean, you, this may be something on the side for you. He came to me year ago and quit his job. He said, my business has gotten so big. And that's what happened to me. My business, my ministry got so big, I had to quit the church I was working for because I couldn't do the church and do what I needed to do. And God called me out to go do gospel bill. So God gave me ideas and I worked to do it. Now, when you do your sixth day, let me give you some ideas. What are you going to do with the money? Don't go buy a new stereo. Don't, buy, go, don't go buy a new sports car. This money is money you're going to use to get ahead. You're going to pay off your debt. You're going to use this money to get rid of a bunch of that debt. You're not doing it just to live higher on the hog. You're going to pay off some debt. You're going to start a savings account. You know what I found about all God's people? God says, I will bless you in your basket and I'll bless you in your store. You know what your store is? Your storehouse is your savings account. For a long time, my wife and I didn't have a savings account because we didn't have enough money. We're so poor, we couldn't pay attention. How are we going to have a savings account? 
So we didn't have a savings account. But I started realizing if I want the fullness of God's blessing, I've got to save some money. If all you do is put $5 a week in an envelope and stick it somewhere in a book, and you can keep most thieves from finding your stuff if you just put stuff in books. They don't look in books. <laughs> All right, now listen, I just stick my envelope in a book with $5 in every week, put another five in there, five in there, five in there. The next thing you know, I got enough money to pay my car insurance. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a little bit here, a little bit there. God says he will multiply your savings account. If you don't have a savings account, 100 times zero is what? Zero. zero. Do you see what I'm saying? So you got to start with use that six-day as get-ahead money. Use your five-day job as this is what we live on. But when you get that little bit of extra, use that. Buy tools with that. I know guys that they started a business, and the first thing they had to do is buy tools. And I started working extra, got this money, and now I, I'm, I keep adding to my stuff. I, I buy more tools, buy more tools. And then the next thing you know, their business expands because they've got the structure to work with. To get the business bigger. That's what I'm saying. And you know what? It starts one little step at a time. Let's take a break. We'll be back in 15 minutes and close this out. Now we're on. Some of you may be disappointed tonight because I'm not sharing some secret investment strategy or I'm not talking about <laughs> how to invest in the market. And, and, and that's way above my pay grade. That's way over my head. I am only giving you what God's given me. And what God's given me is, is spiritual principle that will work anywhere, anytime for anybody. And it doesn't matter. doesn't matter at all. I want to talk about the last thing tonight, and that's the purpose of you being blessed financially. Here's my first idea for all of this, and it's number one. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot outgive God. The Bible says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house and prove me now herewith, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, there will not be room enough to receive. God said, I'm going to pour a blessing on you. God cannot lie. So if we are obedient with our giving and the paying of the tithe, he's going to pour out blessing. But a lot of people have tithed. And they look at their money and they say, you know, I don't know that I have been blessed back. And here's where you've made a mistake. You're looking for dollars. And what I want you to see is God doesn't always answer in dollars. God's currency is wisdom. So we don't have a, if we're, if we're giving and, and we're not seeing something come back, we got a receiving problem. Or it's, not, it's not that God's not giving. It's that we're not receiving. And so what I want you to see, we've got to learn how to receive. pastor friend of mine set down several of the men of his church, older guys. And he says, guys, I want to talk to you. I've seen you guys in my church for years. You've paid your tithes. You've done okay. But I just want to ask you something. Can any of you think of a time that, that God gave you an idea and you sat on it and you didn't do it. And had you followed that idea, it would have made you at least a million dollars. Is there any of you guys say that? And one old farmer spoke up and says, Pastor, I got to tell you what happened to me. 
He said, I was a young farmer. I was doing well, working my farm, making money off my farm. And there was an older farmer that I knew. And he called me over to his farm one day. He said, John, I want you to buy my place. He said, you know how good it is. He said, I have worked this land for years. And I have turned this into a very productive farm. He said, now, I know at first it's going to be a little bit of extra work for you. But you can do it. I know you can do it. You can do it with the farm you've already got plus this one. He said, I'm not going to charge you a penny in interest. I'm going to let you pay this farm out at a safe and reasonable rate. And I know what this farm will do. You will make more money than what it's going to cost to pay it off. You're not going to need a house to live in because you already got a home. So I know you can take this on. I just admire how you've worked, and I want to sell my farm to some young man like you. So John went home and he thought about it. He started thinking, man, that's a lot of extra money. That's a big old payment. And he got to thinking about there's a little bit of risk. And he thought, you know, if this was his God, maybe there wouldn't be any risk. Tell that to David and Goliath. Yeah. Tell that to Daniel and the lies and tell that to Noah. Yeah. There's always a little bit of risk. But God mitigates the risk. A very wise man told me once, he said, if you take on a financial obligation, if you borrow money for something or you take on an obligation, he said, you make sure there is an income stream with it that will help you pay for your added load. And that's what the man had. He had an income stream. Years ago, I borrowed money for TV equipment when we were making gospel bill shows. I had a studio that I leased, and we rented TV equipment. The equipment got worse and worse and worse. The more we rented, the worse it got. It got run down. Other people weren't taking care of it. We would only rent it for one day a week. Then I had to take the raw film that I had and Oral Roberts at his City of Faith Hospital put in an edit suite for editing uh, medical videos for the hospital. And when the hospital didn't do as well, they needed to make some money with that edit suite. So they started selling time in that room. And so that's where I edited the first Gospel Bill shows. So I would shoot them on rented equipment and my guys would take it over and they'd spend four days a week editing the show one day a week we would film it, and then we would have a gospel bill show, one coming out every week. But I wanted to get my own equipment. The first thing I did was I borrowed enough money for just the recording equipment and editing equipment. I couldn't get cameras, couldn't afford them. They were $180,000 for three of them. And so I couldn't get them. <clears throat> and 60 apiece, 60000 apiece. But I got enough money for the edit suite, so I kept renting the cameras. We went six, eight months like that, and the cameras got worse and worse and worse. And it wasn't that we just didn't like them. It's that the light balance on the camera, they didn't match. And so in one shot, I've gone on a blue shirt, and the next shot from the other camera, the shirt turns green, and then it turns purple on the third camera. Okay, because they're all out of whack and they've not been maintained. So it's not a matter of preference. It's just like we don't like changing shirts five times and never seen. So 
I had waited and waited and waited to get the cameras. And finally, uh, what happened is Sony came out with new cameras that cost 20000 a piece. I can now buy three broadcast quality cameras for 20000 $60,000 was the price of one of the cameras before. But I didn't know what was happening. God knew that Sony was going to come out with a chip camera six months after I got my other stuff. And he saved me $120,000 by not getting me that loan. But when I got the loan, now I can make TV shows all the time. So guess what we did? We launched another TV show, this one for teenagers, called Fire by Night. And so I got an income stream to come along with my new debt. I had something else I could sell. And so that Fire by Night video club, $14.95 a month, jumped up to over 2,000 subscribers. So you do the math, $15 a month times 2,000. That's pretty good money, isn't it? And so, but that helped me make my payments. I had new responsibilities, but I had an income stream to go with it. Then one day I was sitting around thinking, you know what, we ought to do a little Sesame Street type show for kids to learn the alphabet that's Christian-based. So we came up with one called Candy Store. Then I said, I know another thing I can do. I can talk to pastors about practical ministry, and I call my TV show for pastors the Ministry of Excellence. We were one of the first pastors uh, training things that were out there to just talk about how you do church. Nobody was doing that. And so we started doing that video called the Ministry of Excellence. I did all of that stuff because I had my own cameras. So I got all these payments, but along with the payments, I had an income stream. Are you with me? All right. Now here's what I want you to see. God wants to bless you financially so that you can be a blessing. He wants to give to you so that you can help his kingdom. That's the whole purpose of all of this. And if we're not careful, it's not just about you heaping this on yourself. God wants to bless you so that you can be generous with his kingdom. Now listen to this. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. I'm going to read it real quickly. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Why is this giver cheerful? Because he knows God's going to pay him back. But God's not going to pay him back in money. He's going to pay him back with ideas. And when you understand that God is raining down ideas on people, there are ideas out there waiting for you. And that's why you can be cheerful. Lord, I don't know how you're going to do this, but you're going to do it. And the one thing I always saw, whenever I gave to God, God started giving me back ideas. Idea after idea after idea after idea. God has ideas for us. Hallelujah. Now, let's keep going. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work as it is written. He scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and 
bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This is a special offering that Paul took from the Gentile churches. He said, I'm taking it back to the saints at Jerusalem. The saints at Jerusalem were responsible for sending the gospel to the whole world. And God started moving on those people. And he moved on them to sell all their properties. They started selling all their lands and they got rid of their property. Consequently, a few years later, they were poor because they'd sold and given up everything. It may look like that God wasn't taking care of them, but that's not true. Now Paul is used of God to take money back to these people to help them. But let me tell you why God had them sell all their stuff. Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And he said it won't take one generation. He said there won't be one stone on this temple mount. It won't be thrown down. There won't be one on top of another. And so God's plan was for his church to get out and to get out of the city. And so by the time they left, they had no ties there because everything had dried up. God had dried it up to save them. And when the Romans came and surrounded the city, the Christians were trapped inside. All those believers Jews were trapped inside. They would have been crucified just like the later Jews would be crucified when the city was finally conquered. But then the Roman emperor died. Nero, you ever hear of him? Nero dies. And so the guy who's in charge of the siege around Jerusalem is a general named Vespasian. He takes his son, Titus, who's also a general, and they leave and they go back to Rome to become the Roman emperor. Vespasian becomes emperor. And then Titus comes back to take over the siege of Jerusalem. But while he's gone, God speaks to all the Christians and said, get out of this city. It's going to be destroyed. Their lives were saved. And money from the Gentile church had helped them to move and go on because of what Paul brought back. Now listen to me. God wants to use you to be a blessing to fund his kingdom. And sometimes he's working in ways you don't, know even, you don't even know he's working. And he has two kinds of blessing for you. Your money falls in two categories. Number one... There is bread for food. And number two, there is seed to sow. God doesn't want all your money. He doesn't want the bread for food part. That's yours. But God does want you to plant seeds. And where you screw up money-wise is when you don't sow any seed. You're not going to get ahead. God, people will say, and I heard people say this, you know, you take that tithe and you give the tenth part and God will bless and he'll increase the rest of your money. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. The, if you go out in the field and you reap a crop and you put a bunch of corn in a silo, but you take 10% out and you replant it, that's the part that God multiplies. He doesn't multiply what you keep. He multiplies what you give. Are you with me? Now, he blesses what you keep, but he multiplies what you give. And so this passage teaches that God wants to bless you so that you will always have enough for you and yours, but you've also got enough to be a blessing to everybody else. Now, I learned this a long time ago, and I didn't tell you this part of the story. I told you I made a million dollars on a piece of property. Can I tell you where I made that money? My wife and I bought a little house in Plainview, Texas, our first home. $14,000. It needed all kinds of work. We loved that little 
apartments. It was ours. It was better than that apartment complex we lived in where everybody's on welfare and, and our upstairs neighbor was a drug dealer. I mean, it was so much better than that. We had a yard. We had a dog. I mean, we had stuff we'd never had before. I was thrilled. God led us to sell the house and go to Tulsa. I had $5,000 in equity. We got to Tulsa, and there was a, an amazing speaker, a missionary, who talked about living to give. Not just giving to live, but living to be a giver. And God spoke to me when I heard him. He said, I want you to give away that $5,000. We were living in an apartment. The, the, our deal hadn't closed. We, we, we didn't have uh, uh, the money yet. And before it came, God told me, give it up. And I said, Lord, I'll do that, but you've got to talk to my wife. <laughs> this is a big deal for her. This is hers too. And I know if this is right, you will have spoken to her by the time I talk to her. So I waited several days, and I said, honey, i got to talk to you. I don't know why I took her in Whit's bedroom. He was our only kid at the time. He was two years old, and we went in his bedroom. I guess I was thinking if she kills me, maybe she'll back off a little bit because it's in front of our two-year-old son. But, <laughs> but I went in there, and I said, baby, God's been talking to me. And she started crying like a baby. She knew what I was going to say. And she's crying like a baby. I said, God told me we're supposed to give away the money off the sale of the house. She said, I know it. He's already told me. I asked him to tell you because I didn't want to tell you without him talking to you first. <laughs> so right there in that little bedroom, we made $10,000 the year before. That was our salary. And we made a decision to give away $5,000, 50% of our annual salary. We gave that away. We joined hands and prayed. We said, God, we're giving that to you. That's why, okay, I, I, I better finish my details. Some realtors knocked on our door that week. They said, you live the house easy as you can in an apartment. And my wife said, honey, I've set up an appointment. We're going to go look in the houses this Saturday. I said, baby, remember, we gave the money away. I know, I know. But you said God's going to give us a house. Well, he will, but maybe not this quick. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm going to humor her. So we, 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 we go looking at houses. We look at six or seven houses. And one of them we go into, the carpet's dry rotted. It needs all kinds of work. This house is run down. The bones are great. It's got good hardwood floors underneath the carpet. But this, this house needs some work on it. And I hear the Holy Spirit say, I double dog dare you buy this house. He said, I don't know. You know what that means in Texas? It ain't just I dare you. I double dog dare you. <laughs> if the Holy Ghost says to you, I double dog dare you, that means he's serious. And I said, Lord, I don't have the money. Are you, is this a test? I still haven't gotten that $5,000 come back in from Plainview. Are you trying to trick me here? You told me to give that. We've given that money, and now you're trying to tell me to buy a house. And so I prayed about it, and I know I heard God. So I went to the reader, and I said, this is funny. But I said, we've got the money, but we don't have the money. We're giving away the money off our house. And instead of the realtor telling me he, I, I was a nut, he said, there's a man over here on South Lewis Avenue who's been doing that for years. Look at what he's built. He's talking about Oral Roberts. He said he was a sinner, but he'd been watching Oral Roberts giving money all that time. And seed faith, he learned all that from watching Oral Roberts. 
And so he got a chance to watch me and my wife do that very thing. So that money came in, we gave it up. But he said, I can put this house under contract for a $500 check. I said, I don't have $500. He said, can you have $500 in 30 days? Yeah, we could have it in 30 days because we're making a little bit more money than we made in Texas. So, yeah, he said, I'll take a post-dated check. So I got 45 days to come up with $5,000. And I tell the Lord, Lord, I'm going to learn something here. If that was your voice, then $5,000 is coming. But if that wasn't your voice, I ain't ever listening to that again. If that's you, if that's you, I ain't listening to you again. And money's got to come, Lord, because I know, I, I thought I heard you, so you got to come through. And I told my wife, I said, this is crazy. I said, I can make a bad confession of faith every single day this 45 days, and we're still going to get the money. This blows me away. I've never had faith like this in all my life. We're going to get the money. 43 days in, I got a check in the mail for $5,000. I administered at a camp meeting, and I'd never done one of those before, and they gave me $5,000 for preaching 62 hours to kids. I earned every bit of that money, but I had... <laughs> 18 services, three services a day, sometimes last until after midnight. I hate camp meetings. To this day, I hate camp meetings. <laughs> but here's my point. <clears throat> we moved in that house, and that's the one we sold and made $10,000 on after we fixed it up, and then twelve, and then fifty-four, and then ultimately we made a million dollars off one piece of property. Do you see what I'm telling you? You can't outgive God. God wants to use you to bless the church. You're all he's got. Someone said, let the rich people do it. The rich people don't have a heart for it, most of them. But you've got the heart for it. Someone says, but I don't have the money. That's fine. God would rather have the heart than the money. If you've got the heart to help the church, God can get money to you. God can help you get all the money you need. That's what he's looking for. I tell... These little young couples in our church all the time, you, you have a heart to support the church, God will get the money to you. Some of you got almost nothing right now. In a few years, you're going to be worth a whole lot of money. And I have these young couples write me letters, and they remind me of what I said. It's amazing how God blesses them because they see what their purpose is. Now listen, my church is about this. Years ago, we had a missionary. You ever heard of Reinhard Bonnke? Reinhardt Bunky comes to our church. Before he got there, the Lord says, Reinhardt's coming. He's got a serious need. I want you to save $100,000 and give him a check for $100,000 when he gets here. So Reinhardt came to our church. He preached the first night. And the next morning, I spoke to him. I said, Brother Bunky, the Lord told me that you have a big need. It's the biggest need you've ever had. And I'm supposed to give you $100,000. He said, Pastor George... He said, I have just been given permission to hold a crusade in Lagos, Nigeria, in the center of the city, on a piece of ground that is soon to be developed. All the major roads go around it. I will have a crusade with well over a million people in attendance at that meeting. God has told me by the Holy Spirit that I will have a service, one single service at some time before I go home to be with Jesus, I will have one service where I lead one million people to Christ. 
He said, I believe this is the crusade. I said, well, what do you need the 100000 for? He said, 